Welcome. This is the Doing Diversity in Writing podcast, the show where we as authors explore the better practices of writing inclusively, whether that be in terms of race, gender, ethnicity, class, sexuality, ability, and so on. Why are we here? To bring more depth and breadth to the characters in our fiction and represent them in the best way possible. My name is Bethany A. Tucker, and with me each week is my co-host, Marielle S. Smith. Ready? Let's dive in. So Grace, thank you so much for being here today. I'm going to go ahead and read your bio. And there are some words here I'm going to ask you to tell me if I got it right or not so that everyone can hear it correctly. But just to start, thank you so much for agreeing to be on here with us and to help spread um, knowledge and education. We just really, really appreciate it, Marielle and I. Yes, we do. And thank you for giving me this opportunity just to kind of share some of the wealth of Indigenous futurisms. (laughs) We appreciate it so much. All right. So Grace L. Dillon, Anishinaabe. I don't think I'm saying that correctly. Sure, Anishinaabe. And you know, we, uh, when we're with each other, a lot of times we just call ourselves Nish with an apostrophe. So you can just go with that if you'd like. Nish with an apostrophe. All right. And you also have friends, family, and relatives from the Bay Mills Nation and the Garden River Nation, I believe? Yes. Um, And also relatives at the Sioux Nation in Ontario. Excellent. And you are a professor in Indigenous Nation Studies Department in the School of Gender, Race, and Nations, and also affiliate professor at English and Women, Gender and Sexuality Departments at the Portland State University in Portland, Oregon in the USA. So Grace teaches undergraduate and graduate courses on a range of interests, including Indigenous futurisms, queer Indigenous studies, gender, race, and nation theories and methodology courses, climate and environmental justices from Indigenous perspectives, reparation justice, resurgence justice, science fiction, indigenous cinema, popular culture, race and social justice, and early modern literature. And as a personal aside, if I was going back to school, I would try to be in all of those classes. Same. (laughs) Those sound like amazing courses, but I will finish this and then we'll get into it. Grace is a senior editor along with editors Isaiah Lavender III, Tyreen Taylor. Did I say that name correctly? Karen Taylor. Okay. And she's Panamanian American. Excellent. Thank you. And Bodavista, I do not know how to say their name at all. Bodavista. And he goes by Bodhi. We all call him Bodhi. We all love him dearly. I love that name. So all three of you are editors of the upcoming Rutledge Handbook of Co-Futurisms, including areas such as Afrofuturism, African Futurism, Indigenous Futurism, Latinx Futurism, 
Asian futurism, Gulf futurism, and futurisms, and BIPOC queer and disability futurisms forthcoming in 2022. Grace has also edited the first scholarly collection of indigenous futurisms with John Ryder and Michael Levy for a double special edition of the journal Extrapolation 2016 and was the nonfiction editor of Lightspeed, People of Color Destroy Science Fiction, June 2016. Grace is the editor of Walking the Clouds, an anthology of indigenous science fiction and Hive Dreams, contemporary science fiction from the Pacific Northwest, published by Oregon State University Press in 2003. And there is a long list of other editorials and um, publications that you've done that is very impressive. We will put it on the website and with the show notes. And I also see, Grace, that you have consulted as a niche, I hope I'm saying that right, person for films such as the upcoming eco-critical dystopian film Antlers by Scott Cooper and Guillermo del Toro? Yeah, Guillermo del Toro. And Antlers is now out and even the the Blu-ray with all of the interviews that are on there. So I'm in an interview in there. Excellent. We'll have to include awesome. that. What was it like consulting for that? Oh my goodness. Well, first of all, I really, really love Guillermo del Toro's work, all of his work. And he contacted me and then Scott Cooper, who is the director, also did Hostels. And um, he is actually an amazing example of a person who becomes an ally for indigenous nations um, so that his works really speak to that. Um, and I think we'll probably be getting into some of those ideas later on. But um, actually, uh, I was able to, he gave me the script and I thought, oh, I'll just make a few corrections and probably there won't be many changes. And then I ended up writing uh, 16 pages <laughs> of oh, wow. changes and edits and different kinds of things. Uh, and he did every single bit of it. And he took that project on himself after having some other writers. And so he not only directed and was one of the producers, uh, but he also wrote that. And that I was so incredibly grateful for um, because uh, Antlers is about the Wendigo and that's an entity that we know to be real, not a myth, not fake you know, um, it's true storytelling. And uh, he really took that into consideration, had Margaret Newton, who I recommended, who speaks Anishinaabemowin fluently. Uh, and so there's a voiceover of her speaking Anishinaabemowin at the beginning of the film. Uh, and then, uh, Graham Greene also was a part of that. 
and he's part of the Algonquin languages connected to uh, the Wendigo, and so he did an amazing job in there. So anyway, um, I was I was very scared about the subject, to be perfectly honest. Uh, we don't even tell stories of it unless the ice over our Lake Superior is completely covered. Um, and uh, so it was nerve wracking for me to consider um, sharing uh, the realities of the Wendigo. Mm -hmm. um, and they just did such a wonderful job with it. And they used it as an allegory uh, because the Wendigo, uh, the old ancient term in our language for it, and Anishinaabemowin, um, and this is pre-contact. So this is before there was any kind of contact. It's um, going back. Meant greedy. It's greedy. And so they show environmental devastation, climate devastation. Um, there's all kinds of intense allegories going on. And Guillermo del Toro's uh, the monster, he created it, and I was able to see it up close, uh, and it was just phenomenal, just phenomenal. Uh, you know, it's Mitsukumiqua, or Mother Earth, that becomes twisted and turned and changed and transmogrified into a monster. Um, it's beautifully done. You're making me need to see the movie like right away. <laughs> Just to know that they put that much effort and work into it and did their research and consulted with with you and everyone else that that just feels so rich and meaningful to me to hear you talk about it. Yes, and and they had me on the set and during the pivotal scenes connected to the Wendigo. I was there for all of that and they checked in carefully. Um, so it, yeah, it was an amazing experience uh, of allyship. And I think that's the kind of do, what do you do with indigenous characters and indigenous stories? Um, I think that that's just a beautiful example of that kind of uh, humbleness of an mm -hmm. ally um, who really, really wants to honor um, Indigenous storytelling. I love that you use the word honor because that takes the concept of working with the peoples who have the stories that you might be including in your creative work in a really partnership yes. kind of way. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I love this. Like it feels to me like we've come a long way. Just hearing this and like this is where we need to be. Ah, yes. Um, there is so much more of that going on, but I'll wait because <laughs> I'm in promise and I could take off on you for too long. So <laughs> yes, actually, Mary Ellen, I could we're very much storytellers ourselves so I would ask um because 
we, I just reached out and emailed you as I was working on preparing topics for this season of the podcast. And I'll be honest, I took my courage in both hands and just sent you an email thinking the worst she can say is no, because I saw the list of things you talked about and that you, um, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were the one who introduced, coined the term indigenous futurisms. Am I correct? Yes, back in 2003. And I want to, in turn, honor Alondra Nelson, who is now working uh, for Joe, uh, President Biden's administration, uh, but is an amazing uh, Black intellectual and African American scholar. And so uh, back in 2002, she put together uh, the first amazing um, African-centered scholars speaking about Afrofuturism for the first time in a collection of essays. And I was just so blown away by that. Um, that I'd been toying with different expressions and I decided, nope, indigenous futurisms is the way to go to honor actually Afrofuturism. Uh, and that's where all the futurisms start headed, heading after that. Uh, and it, it, with, I have to say, uh, some really good help from Professor Cheryl Vint at UC Riverside, um, who is now the chair of the department uh, with science and technology, and who uh, acquired quite a few grants and really brought out writers from all around the world with those different kinds of futurisms. And, helped introduce us to each other and, you know, have recordings that are available and things like that. So um, she did us, and she's another amazing ally because uh, she is uh, non-native, but has always worked very closely as a former Canadian scholar uh, with indigenous issues, uh, especially racial and economic uh, and body technology kinds of issues. So um, I'd love to uh, give her credit for doing that. And then our Rutledge Handbook, in a way, uh, it was an invitation from Rutledge to then bring together these futurisms. Uh, and one thing that in our kind of going over everything and taking a look at it, um, and it can be not only like Gulf and Arabic futurisms, but also Israeli futurisms, you know, it can go on and on. But the thing that really stands out about futurisms is that they actually expand well beyond science fiction. So often there's this kind of misunderstanding that, oh, I see you have science fiction and then 
these wonderful subcategories written by BIPOC peoples, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, when in fact, futurisms encompasses so much more uh, because we do not create the false binary um, that exists between the fantastic horror and science fiction. And it's interesting because it's also reflective of what's kind of going on globally as well. Um, so that it's not just BIPOC peoples doing this or uh, what Bodhi um, has termed as uh, co-futurisms or co-futures. And that encompasses, uh, he's from India himself, and that encompasses peoples who are brown and black globally around the world and are experiencing um, uh, the racial economic uh, injustices, especially with the speeding up of climate change and efforts to you know really bring in climate justice and environmental justice so i just wanted to throw that in there <laughs> oh you've given us so much more to go look up and go read and i really appreciate that um because our audience is so global and we know for a fact that many of our the people listening may have may be hearing these terms futurisms for the first time can you break down, maybe give a couple examples of stories that would fall in futurisms and especially indigenous sure. futurisms? Sure, yeah. Um, I have way too many. I now have um, several bookcases filled with <laughs> indigenous novels and story collections and comics and everything else. Uh, but uh, just to add, the what becomes very distinctive is in the 1980s there had been this real push with cyberpunk towards creating kind of almost a false binary between uh, body and mind and futurisms brings in body mind spirit simultaneously and um, I borrow that from Sammy Schalk who as a black intellectual herself uh, and uh, she works with disability studies and uh, has that as a personal experience. And she talks about body mind without separating the word. And so we've been speaking about futurisms as body mind spirit without separating the words, just as one construct. So some of the stories, oh my goodness, there are so, so many. Uh, but in terms of, let's say, uh, climate, uh, climate justice stories, if you're looking for something along that line. Um, Certainly. Louise Erdrich, who's Anishinaabe, and by the way, as I run through a few of these, I'd be happy to email you later with like actual titles and that sort of thing. 
could you um, please because i i doubt my ability to know how to spell everything Sure. This one Absolutely. was easy because Absolutely. I'm familiar with this author, but I cannot promise that the same goes for the others. Okay, okay. So these are just a few Indigenous Futurisms novels that are decolonizing the Anthropocene or eyeing the Anthropocene is the way I like looking at it. Uh, and so Louise Erdrich's Future uh, Home of the Living God um, and this is a backward, sideways, slewed, or skewed, slantwise evolution for animal persons, bird persons, plant persons, and human persons. Um, and the main character, Cedar, or Mary, accepts her unborn baby as not malformed or deformed or backwards, but as a fully infused human person no matter what the steps and evolutions are occurring sideways or not. Um, so that's a very fascinating book. And it took her 10 years to get permission. She didn't want to publish it through her own uh, uh, bookstore and press, which she has. Uh, and it took her 10 years to be considered for writing a science fiction novel because that, that's one of the difficulties for indigenous persons as a whole is there's this tendency by publishers, it's, it's now really changing, but there has been this tendency in the past to look for the great indigenous American novel, right? <laughs> yes, we yes. actually talked about some of that in our first season of our podcast is the difficulty of access oh. to publishing. Okay, yeah. okay, yeah. that, that yeah. you just expected to do that and stay within that type, you know, so therefore mm -hmm. you can't write about the future, you know. Um, yeah. Leanne Beta Samasaki Simpson, and she's also Nishinaabe, has this amazing short story called Ekaden Boreal in her collection of This Accident of Being Lost, Songs and Stories. Um, and also her new novel, Nukaming, The Cure for White Ladies, uh, that came out in February 2021. Um, it connects to animal persons quite a bit uh, in, in an indigenous futuristic kind of sense. And that's just uh, incredible. And then Sherry Dimaline, uh, she may be better known. She's Métis. And um, she had written The Marrow Thieves in 2017. And it was a YA book. And it's about a world nearly destroyed by global warming. Indigenous peoples are being hunted for their bone marrow uh, because of the lost ability of others to dream. Um, and so that actually was turned into a TV series. And she has a sequel out now um, that just came out a couple months ago, maybe in November. Uh, uh, to that called Hunting the Stars. And while both are YA novels, as with a lot of indigenous futurisms, the YA novels are very um, 
uh, they don't hold back, right? They don't censure in the sense of, ah, you are a youth. And so therefore we will be careful about what we talk about. Um, there's a real sharing of uh, these kinds of stories that even though they're YA, um, they have great meaning uh, that uh, for adult readers and many, many, many other kinds of readers as well. I appreciate uh, that. Well, I oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm just saying that that is a trend in YA, uh, especially uh, I would say for LGBT community that Marielle and I belong to and um, other communities that uh, we've kind of kept our eye on is that, you know, youth are ready to handle it. They're already handling it in their day-to-day -day lives. We shouldn't pretend in literature that they don't know. Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. I'll later on send you, um, Alyssa, I've got to look up her title so I say it correctly. Um, um, she's Latinx, but she was actually uh, an example of a person who came to meet with me and talked quite a bit because uh, in her Latinx LGBTQIA, and then we always add in two plus for two spirit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I like that. Uh, <laughs> So it can get a little lengthy, but it's, it's all meaningful. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and so she came and visited with me many, many times to uh, talk about bringing in little people's stories from different tribal nations, but in particular from um, the Nish tribal nations, because uh, we have many, many stories of little people and um and that was in her uh first YA novel that Soho Press picked up and at the time she was saying to me Grace this is this is way too adult for I'm just I wrote about my personal experience and this is way too adult for for youth, but apparently Soho Press thought, no, no, this is a good idea. <laughs> so um, I'll be sure to send her, she's, she's now done two novels at this point. She's amazing. And I'll, I'll give you a couple more of the Anthropocene uh, and decolonizing the Anthropocene and climate justice novels like uh, Wobgeshig Rice's Moon of the Crusted Snow that came out in 2018. He's also Nishnabe. <laughs> there truly are many other writers besides Nish writers, but uh, some of the recent ones uh, we've been coming out with. And that uh, asked the question, how do we live in a good way during the collapse of an infrastructure that supports modern life. And when you get cut off from the rest of Mitsukumekwa or Mother Earth, that's our expression for Mother Earth, in an unforgiving North Ontario winter, um, 
And then the um, ideas of caribou and elk, as you find them, that you feed your elders first, then your enemies first, and then your friends and relatives. And so he sets up some of the uh, forms of uh, niche tribal protocol right within that wonderful story. And I'll be talking with him on a panel in a couple days. Uh, yeah, in a couple days. And he is actually creating a sequel to that novel because it became so popular. And then Harold Johnson's Corvus, uh, he's Cree. Uh, he uh, spent his life as a lawyer, but he was always out in the bush uh, with the trap lines that he had inherited uh, from his ancestors. And uh, his is a wonderful uh, about climate justice and he has organic recreational vehicles, ORVs, which actually are uh, big, big, images of uh, they become organic machine-like birds that can fly so that as a human being you can step into for instance he has a raven uh, and then this machine organic <laughs> being an entity <laughs> and spirit actually scoots him off to a niche village um, and it talks about you know, 80 years into the future with natural climate disasters and wars. Um, and Alexis writes the Swan book uh, in 2013 and reprinted in 2018. And she's a member of the Wani Nation of the Southern Highlands of the Gulf of Carpinteria. Also talks about the devastation of climate wars. Uh, Oblivia Ethelene and Bella Donafrom uh, are uh, up. Uh, Bella rescues her from a gum tree. Um, you have old warships uh, and you have bombing, constant bombing uh, by the military in what is now the indigenous territory, quarantined off as indigenous territory, and is a polluted dry swamp that's fenced off from the rest of Australia by the army. That's an amazing, amazing book. And then Claire G. Coleman, who herself is lesbian, and she and her partner actually traveled all around Australia um, uh, in order for her to create this particular uh, book. It's called Terra Nullius. Mm -hmm. She is South Coast Noongar people. Uh, and there you have natives and settlers. And I don't want to spoil this story too much. I'll let, you know, uh, people get into it. But uh, there is there is a surprise that goes on in it um, that makes it science fiction uh, because for the first, I don't know, maybe 100 pages or so, you're thinking, is this really science fiction or indigenous futurisms? 
is this in the future in any kind of way? <laughs> Isn't this in the past? <laughs> wow. And, and then she has also done uh, a new novel called The Old Lie and uh, The Old Lies. And that, again, um, it's set this time with spaceships, uh, but brings in um, so many of those kinds of things. And, um, oh, there's um, one of the first science fiction indigenous futurism books ever written uh, was by Anishinaabe Gerald Visner's Bear Heart in 1978. And even back then, and there was the 1970s oil crisis, and he created uh, the landscape that heralds our anthropocentric, you know, uh, awareness. Uh, and how U.S. is this post-apocalyptic wasteland and it becomes incapable of negotiating trades or developing alternative sources for energy. And so they start uh, encroaching on native lands for timber. Uh, and they use disaster to authorize violent anti-democratic restrictions and regulations on travel. Uh, and this is a, even though it was written in 1978, it feels a little too prescient in um, 2022. <laughs> I was going to say that it feels very uh, both future and past and also was making me think of some of the time I spent in China and things I saw happen there. Um, uh -huh. It feels very, uh -huh. I, I taught in China. I was also a student at Nanjing University for a year. And some of my students were oh. Uyghur students from the Xinjiang region. Um, yes, I worry about them constantly. I hope they're okay because um, you probably know the news. It's not very good. Right, right. Absolutely. But you, all these and titles, go ahead. Oh, <laughs> yes, I'll be sure. To, I'll be sure. To say. Now that was just on climate justice, you know, and then there's a, a whole series of books on animal persons, like Darcy Little Badger, who's Lippin Apache. Um, her first book was called A Lots Away. And it's a beautiful example of how indigenous futurisms is not just simply about um, the science, although often indigenous futurisms, as Helen Haig Brown uh, from the Chicota Nation puts it, and uh, with her permission, I often repeat that now. Uh, because we talked with each other about, well, what does indigenous futurisms mean? And she was suddenly told to, you know, create this film um, under a Lars von Trier experiment that was indigenous science fiction written in her own language. And she didn't know a whole lot about that. She usually did feminist, indigenous feminist documentaries on language revitalization, which are amazing. 
Um, and in the converse, in the process of our conversation, as I'm trying to, you know, give her a glimpse of what some of this might be, she said, oh, I get it, Grace. You're just talking about taking the fiction out of science fiction. And that has become a very popular usage at this point. Um, critics like John Reeder, um, who writes about indigenous futurisms, or Daniel Heath Justice, or many others uh, as scholars who've written about it, um, often her quote, and she'll be given credit, is brought up. And that's, that is, um, I think a very telling comment, right? You know, our stories are not magical realism, just as a lot of uh, Latinx stories are not magical realism. Um, and so it's, it's taking that fiction out of that aspect. You're telling a true story. You're telling true sciences that you can actually use um, and so all of that, I think, uh, is very helpful. Oh, but if I can just add this, um, her new book that just came out, I just got it and I'm still reading it and I love it so much, um, is called A Snake Falls to Earth. And there are many, many collections and stories um, that in indigenous futurisms that work with animal persons uh, that are very, very much a part of the story. Rebecca Rowan Morris has that uh, in all of her stories. Uh, uh, and she is uh, both a Black American and uh, Pueblo. Um, and then Ambeline Quaimulina, uh, I really want to bring her up. She's Australian uh, First Nations and has written actually um, a series, uh, a tribe series. The first one starts off with the interrogation of Ashala the wolf. And in there you have very much um, animal persons that are interacting in the future, very much so. Uh, with human persons and machine persons and uh, all other kinds of things. And um, she herself has a law degree. And so she's bringing in actually a lot of legal precedents in order to, um, and you may know of this already, how in New Zealand, the Wangarai River was actually given um, personhood as status. I uh, did hear about that. Yeah. yeah. And um, certain mountains that are being given uh, personal status. And so her series is so much better than The Hunger Games. <laughs> I actually want to see it as, as a uh, triple movie. I've got to tell you, it's so amazing. Uh, but what she's doing is she's also, even though they're YA books, she is cleverly introducing legal, actual legal precedents uh, 
for all of these aspects. Um, and so um, that it, it's just so clever and so wonderfully written. Oh, and if I may mention a um, pattern that is starting to occur, thanks to all this stuff going on, is that um, a lot of people, uh, indigenous writers, because indigenous futurism is, you are an indigenous person writing from that standpoint. It's called indigenous standpoint theory in um, Australia First Nation scholarship. Okay. Uh, like Eileen Morton Robinson's uh, The White Possessive. Uh, but, oops. The, the <laughs> pattern. <laughs> okay, okay. The pattern so that's the starting pattern. to occur. Uh, thank you. Thank you. The pattern that's starting to occur is that as you get your doctorate, sometimes at a master's level too, but more often at a doctoral level, you're actually able to write one of your novels and then analyze it and bring in all of the critical theory that is starting to accumulate in these areas. There are now actual scholarly positions specifically for indigenous futurisms tenure track jobs globally around the world that is really um, exciting the, yeah that's amazing isn't that amazing at the macquarie university oh my goodness uh brawny bronwyn carlson uh heads that up and got a 25 million dollar grant and i'm on the board for that but she and everyone there has pulled together a center for indigenous futurisms. Uh, and they have a, um, a press that while it's not specifically native, it has opened up specifically to indigenous futurisms. It's called the Hatchet Press. And so it's just publishing like crazy. Um, all of these books that are coming out. So what's so wonderful is I'm able to see um, indigenous peoples globally that are working on their doctorates. And part of it is the joy of reading their own creativity, um, not just their um, theoretical aspects, right? Um, and then they're able to publish um, that book or novel or or um, sometimes stories sometimes uh indigenous comics <laughs> that's pretty exciting uh, other kind of thing yeah yeah um so there's video games there's comics out there my daughter elizabeth lapense does indigenous video games that are uh indigenous futuristic and um, there's the Moonshot Collection, Volume 3. Um, it's through Red Planet and other places. Uh, you can get it on Amazon.com too. Evil Empire. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, and, but moving on. <laughs> uh, 
sad to say, sometimes I have to resort to the evil empire in order to get books that are not available anywhere else. <laughs> yes, I regularly have to do that too. But um, yeah, know the feeling. Have you reached that sweet place where you've written out your entire story? It's a wonderful feeling. You've worked so hard for this, spent so many long hours at the keyboard or talking to yourself via recorder, then going over it again at the computer. It's been mostly internal work and it's often been alone. But now it's time to take it from rough to polished. And for that outside perspective is essential. Let me help you. As a developmental editor, I, Bethany A. Tucker, will take your hand, sort through your draft, answer your questions, and help you polish it until your work shines. You don't have to do this alone. It doesn't matter if this is your first book or your 10th book, whether you've published this book already and want to make it better, or you're teetering on the edge, eager to publish for the first time. Together, we can take your book to the next level. Contact me via links in the show notes or at theartandscienceofwords at gmail.com to take the next step. Um, I'm writing down all these names, but I'm also watching the clock and I want to respect your time. Um, do you mind if I ask one of the follow-up questions that we were going to circle back to? Sure. sure, absolutely. All right. So, uh, you have massively increased my to-be-read pile to a staggering <laughs> yes. amount. <laughs> um, and, uh, I, I will probably be processing because so many of these stories speak to parts of my um, my own experience, especially when you mentioned mind body. But for our audience, the people who are listening, um, one of the questions that comes up so often when people talk about writing the other, so whoever they are, if they're trying to write someone else, and in this case, trying to write indigenous um members of indigenous communities, which are very vast and diverse in and of themselves. That's just a term we're using to be able to talk about something without saying names one after the other for an hour. Because um, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's so vast. So can you speak broadly to the do's and don'ts of writing in this vast, diverse indigenous communities? Um, for, for authors that are just like trying to start grappling with it. And a lot of them have a lot of fear. They either fear that they don't know enough, they fear they're don't, being respectful or they're just intimidated by just starting the process. Yes, and for those that are and have that kind of consciousness of spirit, I am so grateful for them because that means that even if they are not actual allies at the moment, that means that they are open to becoming genuine allies for indigenous communities. And um, there's several ways of going about this. One is that you spend time, uh, much time, with a particular nation, uh, with their invitation. Kim Stanley Robinson actually did that um, and told me that when we invited him out for his book, Years of Rice and Salt, which is a science fiction novel and quite amazing. And, but 
he um, is very humble because he spent um, uh, six to eight weeks uh, with them and then getting their permission, you know, and having them look it over. Uh, Donna Haraway herself also did that. Um, she's known for such, being such an amazing, amazing scholar. Uh, but she herself, uh, she's writing novels, one of them with animal persons. And she herself, uh, and again, told me this as a personal story, um, has spent a great deal of time, and I'm afraid I've forgotten what nation it was with, uh, but spent a great deal of time with those nations first. So that's one way of going about it, is that um, instead of trying to uh, imagine <laughs> Indigenous communities, that you become involved, you know, you become genuinely involved and spend some time with Indigenous communities. Uh, another way, which is faster, and, you know, for some people, you don't have that kind of time or that kind of access. Um, Another way, um, and a lot of small publishing presses are actually starting to do this and make it a part of this, is that you have a consultant um, that is from that particular tribal nation. The other thing that's really important is not to write a story that's just generally about native or indigenous peoples right because yeah. even though we may have a lot of patterns in common we are very 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 different and um yes. and so that's become an important feature is to uh get a consultant a creative consultant from uh, and there are plenty of them usually from all the tribal nations and have them look over your manuscript uh, and pay them money for yes. doing so. You know, it doesn't have to be much, but um, give them uh, some kind of funding in order to go over that. And those two ways to me are the safest. <laughs> I would definitely agree. And... I would definitely agree. When we were recording season one of our podcast, I think it was episode four or five, we referenced, um, we, we were talking about uh, cultural appropriation and cultural uh, appreciation. Which yeah, that was episode four. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we talked about the Disney film Pocahontas and then um, the Assassin's Creed. Uh, video games. You're laughing. I, I feel like there's a story here. <laughs> yeah, both are pretty bad. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, we we had we had a nuanced, and we also found ourselves at at many points saying, "Well, this is the limits of what we can find." Um, and there was indigenous consultants on both of those projects that we found when we did our research. But what are uh, 
what are ways beyond going to like Reddit or the internet and being like, I'm looking for this. What are respectful ways that would be appreciated by these communities to approach and spend time in a way that's um, not patronizing, that's respectful, that the community, like how do you, how does someone approach a community and say, I would like to spend time with you? Oh, or yes. hire, um, or hire someone as well, a consultant. Well, and I think too, um, not just having consultants, but for instance, I'll give a Disney example, uh, Manoa, which mm -hmm. actually is um, a much much better example than Pocahontas of bringing in and being able to really genuinely bring in uh, Hawaiian indigenous ways of thinking and uh, Pacifica ways of thinking uh, and storytelling and uh, uh, the foods, the uh, different kinds of forms of uh, traditional protocol the indigenous sciences that were expressed in that. So it, it doesn't have to be that, uh-oh, it's a Disney film, better watch out. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that Moana, which was made much later than the Pocahontas uh, film, uh, they're just bringing, and also having actors right, and actresses uh, that are yeah. Pacifica uh, uh, and, or Hawaiian indigenous. Um, that's really, really important. And, um, and then for the, the director and others to really listen, um, I'll, I'll give you a, a bad example. <laughs> Bad examples teach us. Kind of, okay, <laughs> which we, which is why we kind of have a difficult time with the Twilight um, series. Yeah. Which, um, oh, we talked extensively about uh, Twilight oh, on the show. <laughs> yay! Okay, and I have so many friends from those various, like the Quaalut uh, and. Uh, Maka and others, um, and they were largely borrowing from the Quaalute, mm -hmm. uh, without consulting, without checking with them. Uh, and then there were Native actors, um, some of them that actually, I, I taught a vampirism and film course <laughs> with many uh, queer and trans overtones. Yes, yes. I am ever so insanely jealous of your students. I'm just going to say it. These classes were not being taught when I was in school. Okay, okay. So I had a number of Native students that when the twilight, they came around to look for actors and actresses. So they got in because they had just taken this course. So they were able to talk about Lacan <laughs> and 
Zizek and, and you know, all of these other kinds of um, uh, critical theorists, continental critical theorists that were connected to vampirism film along with native knowledge. And so many of them got hired and then they just helped me keep track of the rest of the films, right? You know, I would mm -hmm. check in with them and um, see how things were going. And what they noticed is that even though there were some directors that were more race conscious and, for instance, were bringing in Maori um, actors, uh, even if it wasn't, uh, you know, any Quailute <laughs> actors or the yeah, those from that the showed up nation. in our research. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, that um, what they did is they just sat down um, as these young, you know, actors and actresses that were activists the native uh, ones involved were highly activist and used it as an opportunity to branch out into other things and really talk about issues. Um, but the one question they asked, I'll just say, um, they asked all the directors, but one in particular who was very sensitive and they thought, oh, good. Oh, we're gonna have a good time working with him. Uh, and then they, simply asked him to name um, native films that he knew, you know, that had been created by native directors like Chris Ayer and others, you know, and there's so many out there. And he didn't know a single one. And for them, that was just, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> Uh, that was a real issue for those actors and actresses, and they were largely in their 20s and 30s um, as a wonderfully activist generation uh, who are part of land back movements. Um, that's been a strong part of Indigenous Futurism's Chelsea Vowell, who's Métis um, and does... Um, uh, Métis in Space. She's done podcasts and uh, is coming out with a novel, I think, pretty soon, or some writings that she's been working on. Um, and so for us, um, writing itself, uh, it, like say if you're working with climate, is a form of climate justice, right? Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm, yeah. But it's accompanied by working with either your communities or as an urban Indian with urban native communities or wherever you are, that you're, um, you're making sure to balance your time with that. Um, now, that's, that can be a, a tough call, right? <laughs> can be <laughs> for allies but, but that's what allies really mean uh for many of us and i mean linda twy smith uh in decolonizing methodologies and so many other places 
it's made clear that the ally, if you're going to write and bring in indigenous characters, for instance, then as an ally, it's important for you to be humble about that and uh, to not put yourself forward, but instead to mm. spend time, uh, you know, that's part of the protocol, right? Time. So I'll stop there. I have too many awful stories I could share about cultural appropriation. I, indigenous consultants yeah. not being paid and stuff like that. So. Uh, <laughs> I can just imagine. But just thinking about this, I'm just, you gave us such an amazing list of, um, of authors and their work. And I do hope you're going to send me all those links so I can add them to the show notes. But for me, just thinking, like when you talk about allyship and about um, like wanting to know what you're talking about, I think for a lot of people, like the first thing you need to do is just crack open a novel by somebody who you're going to write about. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. writing uh, uh watching indigenous futurism's films uh graphic novels video games um there's uh podcasts there's so many different means along with the novels and the short story collections that you're absolutely right you know that really does help and then once you've done that you don't want to like superficially copy right no so then you're working with your own ideas and then you're checking in with consultants of that particular tribal nation oh and if i may i'd like to point out that um complications can ensue with indigenous writers writing about other tribal nations as well. We do have to be careful about that. Uh, Linda Hogan, when she wrote People of the Whale, uh, which is the Maka nation uh, in the Olympic Peninsula, uh, and she's uh, Chickasaw herself, Chickasaw nation. Well, she went and spent time with them and was very humble about it and checked in with them. Uh, Rebecca Rowanhorse, who is Pueblo and uh, Black American, she made a point of her husband is Navajo, Dene. And she made a point of not only checking in with he and his family, but also elders of the community and many others in the community that supported her writing about the Navajo Nation as being the huge nation that is left in the future, surrounded by this wall that everyone is trying to get into. And um, she too was very careful and checked in. So it's, it's not even just, you know, oh, if you're a non-Indigenous person, you should check in. It's 
you know, uh, if you are not of that tribal nation or have not grown up having the kind of experiences that you want to write about, um, then that's part of the sharing and discussing and having conversations and, and asking permission uh, in, a, in an honorable way. Thank you for that. I have one question that's coming up and then maybe we should probably start wrapping up because we've quite gone over the time I promised you. Um, and uh, don't worry about me, guys. I'm worried about you. <laughs> those of us in the storytelling traditions, um, and I, I grew up with Irish storytellers, uh, we kind of go over time because time doesn't really mean the same thing. Uh, American right. Irish. I, I can't claim to be Irish Irish. Um, one resource that I did not hear you mention and one that I've struggled with in the small amount that I've worked with, uh, personally worked with um, indigenous traditions and histories is you did not mention museums at all. And I'm just gonna put this in context. I live right now, I just moved to Macon, Georgia. And I live about 15 minutes away from the, I struggle to say this word properly, so I apologize. The Mulkolgi Mounds, um, the indigenous ah. mounds. Yes. Uh, yes. The, the, the people that they belong to were removed to Oklahoma. Um, but as I was walking through the installations there. Cahokia Mounds? It's spelled M-U-L. I will look at this up. I'm a terrible speller. It's more of a visual person. No worries. Manau is our word for no worries. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's... um... Nope, I misspelled it so badly that... uh... Duck, duck, go does not understand me. Um, it, it's said closer to Mok Olgi, and they are the, the oldest, one of the oldest um, architectures, at least in this region of the US. We're continuous. I'll look it up in a second. But my point was that as I'm walking through it, even with the, even with my background in feminism, as I'm watching the way they present the, the, the people that are currently in charge of it, the, the uh, national parks, uh, the way they're talking about it, I would not consider that a resource at all for information. Um, so what is your experience? It's like someone's trying to get information. Would you suggest not using museums, especially museums that are not curated by indig- the indigenous people that they are representing? as a resource? Well, it's interesting because I was thinking um, there's the combination of, uh, like we have our Jibawing Museum um, that is close to Saginaw or the Saginaw Chippewa and, uh, and visit there many times. And that was completely, uh, 
native bought land, uh, native op it's completely native operated and uh, shows not just, um, it has plenty of, um, of archived uh, aspects, but it's done with, uh, along with song and dance and immersive interactive kinds of aspects uh, and contemporary artists, because that's what um, a lot of museums, uh, like I was thinking of Deborah Papuan, uh, I'll send you her name uh, because she works at uh, the very prestigious Chicago Museum and was hired in uh, as an indigenous person to do this very kind of thing. And as she was showing me around, instead of having more static um, things behind glass uh, that you take a look at, uh, like they were able to bring over uh, with, with Maori peoples and blessings and ceremony uh, uh, a Maori um, uh, structure in which you would go into it ceremonially, you know, so it becomes this really immersive kind of experience. Or you could have things like um, Lisa Jackson, Anishinaabe again, um, who does uh, 3D uh, immersive experiences um, so that when you're going through, uh, you're able to hear the languages, but you're also able to experience and help yourself. The Inuit uh, have done that. Um, and then if you don't have that, there are um, scholars like Amy Lone Tree. Oh, she's absolutely amazing. And I think she's at UC Santa Barbara right now as a professor. I can check on that. She actually was with us for a short while and we absolutely uh, adored her. Uh, and she is an example of a scholar, indigenous scholar of museums that spends time going around um, and it's much more than consulting. It's much deeper than that, right? But really helping to set up uh, either sections of museums uh, uh, like the Smithsonian or um, gets going museums like uh, Warm Springs Nation and the museum there. And she worked uh, very carefully with them. So there's those kind of opportunities as well, I think. I'm really excited to hear that. I looked up the term. Um, it's the Okmulgee Mounds, O-C-M-U-L-G-E-E. -E. I swapped the syllables in my head. <gasps> okay. okay, for sure, for sure. And oh, and I've got to tell you that indigenous futurisms has gone into far more than just fiction at this point. And since you bring that up, um, I'll just reference one. Uh, Laura Harjo, 
who is Miskoki herself, um, or for some people that would be Muskokee Creek. Um, she's a geographer, uh, uh, an indigenous geographer. And her book called Spiral to the Stars, Miskoki Tools of Futurity, um, she very kindly starts off with an explanation of indigenous futurisms uh, and brings me in very kindly as well. And, uh, and then uses that uh, to look at the geographical um, ideas and theories and boundaries. So what's been really exciting is that this has kind of jumped into uh, other disciplines. Uh, anthropology now is really strongly working with indigenous futurisms. Uh, and uh, I'm on the board for um, the ethnic board of the International Space Station and they are very interested in looking uh, for BIPOC and, you know, I'll just say co-future. And for me, that also involves the strands of LGBTIQA2+, uh, uh, and uh, the disability with parentheses around discs like Sammy Schalk does. Mm. Um, all of those kinds of strands are actually being uh, written about, workshopped about, conversed about uh, for the International Space Station itself. And so there, it's fascinating how uh, a lot of it's not just a um, fictional enterprise, right? It's, it's become something that um, has become exciting in many, many different kinds of areas at this point and disciplines. I'm not sure about you, but I can't separate our telling of fiction to every other part of our life because fiction ignited ideas in me in parts of my life that weren't fiction, story is living for me at least. And so it just, it seems oh. natural to me that it would just permeate. Oh, I love that so much. Um, I'll send you the Anishinaabemo and phrase. Um, I've got it here somewhere uh, that it, as I was growing up with my language, uh, we did not separate, it was the same word for scientist, artist, and writer. Oh, so I... <laughs> so amazing. So when I finally went to college out in California, I was <laughs> really shocked to discover that uh, these were segmented out as different things. <laughs> That must have been destabilizing, actually. It, it was, it was just shocking. Uh, and there were other things like, uh, like they would set up these, you know, entrance final to get students to come to UC systems. And they would set up these tricky essays uh, to reveal whether your um, 
you know, cognizant of social justice and other kinds of issues. So one was this um, essay version that somehow gave the impression that females were less better at science than males. Mm-hmm. And I was in complete shock. I was like, well, how are any of them going to fall for that? We all know that isn't true. <laughs> I was in the UC setting. Uh, this is for Berkeley. And <laughs> it just swiveled. They all swiveled their heads and looked at me like, what are you talking about? And then I was like, well, what do you mean? <laughs> so, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> there were so many uh things uh that you know universities taught me about you know some of the hierarchies and (laughs) discriminations yep viewpoints (laughs) i'm just i'm just glad you can laugh about it oh yes yeah well that now that is something about the niche we laugh when we're happy nervous sad angry (laughs) i mean sometimes laughter is sometimes laughter is like one of the few healthy responses to absolute shock yeah yes yes in uh Walida Emerisha and Adrian Marie Brown's absolutely beautiful, beautiful Afro-futurism uh, collection. It's called Octavius Brood, and they use social justice workers in it. And, oh, excuse me, Nokomis moment. I was about to say something about that. Oh, oh, there's a short story in there that my students absolutely love and it's about revolution and the revolution is that as BIPOC people are being jailed uh, as inconsistently as it occurs today but hyper amplified that their uh, absolute revolutionary act is to laugh Mm. and my students are just really, really struck by that story. Yeah. Yeah, that reminds me of, um, I can't remember her name right now. We talked about her on the podcast, um, a queer Latinx um, author. And she has a podcast and it's about Hi. joy because that is like the most radical thing you can do. Right. Is to- to, f- to right. feel joy and sort of like, and celebrate that. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's, uh, I'm looking for Joshua Whitehead right now, um, if I can find him, where he says something very, very similar to that, um, but that living the importance of it as a uh, he is uh, OG Cree uh, 
queer and two-spirit, and he distinguishes that. Uh, and he has this amazing collection that he edited called um, Love After the End. That's so talking about, you know, Anthropocene. <laughs> An anthology of indigiqueer and two-spirit um, speculative fiction. Amazing. And um, in his introduction there, he brings up that same sense of you know, it's not just surviving, it's the no. joyfulness of living and the immediacy of that joyfulness um, yeah. that's really important. That kind of gets us back to the point you made very early in the beginning that this, this um, and, and I think we see that a lot uh, for BIPOC authors is that a lot of publishers, when they, when they um, sort of you know, share their stories with, with potential publishers, what they get back is that it's not dramatic enough or it's not, you know, it's not about the struggle enough. It's not not enough pain in it. Go write more yeah. pain. Yeah. 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 As if as if as yeah. if as, as if they're not allowed to go from the surviving to the thriving. Right. Right. And that actually is Gerald Visner's um, this is both a theoretical term and one for practice, which a lot of our indigenous theory really does fuse theory with practice immediately, as in fact um, is the case in Black studies and Latinx studies and other kinds of areas. Uh, but, oh, oh, excuse me, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I just blanked out again. <laughs> you were talking about uh, laughter and fusing theory and um, and action right away. Okay, okay. So Gerald Visner, his, uh, and there have been many, many books that he's written about it and other indigenous theorists have written about it. Um, and he calls it survivance. And I mean, if you were to just look that up in the French sense, um, it doesn't capture what he means by it. Uh, with survivance, it is actually the ability Ability to overgo victory, uh, tragedy, and dominance. Um, and you overgo that with storytelling and natural reason. And with storytelling and natural reason, then it becomes the celebration. So he suggests that it then actually becomes celebratory. You know, mm -hmm. so that you can bring in um, that trauma, but you're also bringing in the laughter and uh, uh, the other kinds of things that are going on, like Tommy Orange's book that's so famous for that, uh, where, you know, you have an actual shooting that's taking place. Um, at a powwow 
and uh, similar to like school shootings. And yet uh, throughout that book, there is so much, uh, many moments of joy and celebration and all of the other kinds of things that are accompanied with that. So I think that's a really good example. Oh, and tell me Orange, even though that's not an Indigenous Futurisms novel, he has done Indigenous Futurisms in collections that have come out, um, like the McSweeney collection that's looking at the year 2050, and you write a short story, and then you have this wonderful illustration going along with it. Um, I love that. You're re what you're talking about is reminding me of my personal reaction to watching the Netflix show Sensate, where, oh, have you seen that? Uh-huh. There was just such, I mean, there is a lot of trauma in there, a lot of, and, and some of it was very personal to me as I watched it, but the joy in the relationship and how the characters came together, there were like points that I was crying because I was so happy to see that joy on the yeah. screen. Yes absolutely oh my goodness and that's what um chris air e-y-r-e who's cheyenne arapaho and was adopted by non-indigenous parents uh here in portland and so he made really strong connections with warm springs nation uh and he's known as one of our greatest native filmmakers he's he's made so much and he's always brings in that humor um, there's that aspect of that humor that we're always bringing in uh, 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 to share in that yeah that's absolutely. beautiful that's I think beautiful. that might be a really beautiful note yeah I was to gonna wrap this up I agree. I was going to say, did anyone have any last comments? And then we should probably wrap this up while it's still short enough for our listeners to get through. I know <laughs> I will have to be re-listening to this myself. Marielle? No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm still reeling from all the information. <laughs> all right. Um, Grace, did you have any last thoughts before we wrap up? No, but I am very happy to, I have an academic email address. And if there is anyone who is interested in, you know, maybe having a little bit more, and I'll send you a, a list of some of these too. Uh, it's gotten pretty lengthy. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderfully <point>. so. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but um, no, I, you know, I, I think that is a wonderful place to stop at. Uh, and, and maybe just know that there's just so much more um, exciting features of Indigenous Futurisms that we didn't even get to. We didn't. There was so much we didn't get to. 
Well, on that note, um, we will put the email in the show notes so everyone can access it. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing from a lifetime of work and the work of everyone else that you've studied and brought in and shared with us today. Um, It's so much more than I hoped for, and I know we both appreciate it. (laughs) Yes, and I I especially want to thank you for focusing, uh, focusing mostly on the good examples because I know when we talk about this topic it's so easy there are so many bad examples out there so I'm so excited that we now have this massive list that we can share with our listeners so they can actually engage with work um, that has done it better that is doing it better uh, because I think that's where the learning moment is for all of us yeah, and, and I really do feel at least um, for those that I've come in contact with that I think and hope that anyone who is bringing in Indigenous characters at this point are very eager to consult or um, to work with tribal nations or uh, uh may even have um, ancestral background themselves that has become lost uh, through the Dawes Act and other kinds of policies um, and who are therefore unregistered tribally, but are really seeking through because a lot of writers do that. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important feature as well. Mm-hmm. yeah I would agree all right thank you so much we will put everything in the show notes thank you so much for this uh, we hold each other up mm-hmm. yes we do yes we do For joining us music for this show was written and produced by eric mills if you found this episode helpful please rate and review on your favorite podcast app and spread the word so other writers can find us too to get our doing diversity and writing toolkit which includes all bonus material from season one go to representationmatters.art that's dot a-r-t here you will also find our episode show notes Happy writing and see you next episode.